I've got something I want to share with you guys from the story of Jonah. Uh, if you want to throw that first slide up on the screen, we're going to be in Jonah throughout the whole book, really, but mostly focusing on chapter three. So um, let's pray, and then we'll get into it. God, we love you. We're so thankful for your word. We're so thankful that it guides and instructs and leads us to who you are and what you're about. And God, I just ask that in this time, you would speak directly to our hearts. We love you, God, and we ask this in your name. Amen. So I want you guys to imagine a scenario. Uh, Imagine that God comes to you in the middle of the night, and he gives you like a, a vision and a dream. And he shows up in your dream, and he says, I have a mission for you. And you say, what is it, Lord? You know, because you're a follower of Jesus, and now God's showing up, and you're like, oh, he's got a mission for me. So then he says, I want you to go across the world to visit a specific group of people. And you say, yes, that, that sounds amazing, Lord. I'm willing who, Lord? Is it orphans in Mexico? Is, is it tribes in Africa? What, what is it, Lord, that you have for me? And then God replies to you, um, ISIS. I want you to go preach to ISIS. Now, if you guys don't know who ISIS, does everyone here know who ISIS is? Yeah, it's just, yeah you know, okay. It's, it's this horrible group that's doing terrible things around the world, killing Christians, chopping off people's heads. So you say, Lord, really? And he says, yes. And you say, okay, Lord, so is this a heroic mission? Do I need to train in martial arts and explosives? Are you going to send me to like bring their destruction? And God replies, no, you misunderstand. I want you to go find them. Tell them that I forgive them if they'll follow me. Tell them what they're doing is wrong and tell them about the grace and mercy they can find in Jesus. And you respond, oh, so you want me to die. That's, that's what you want, Lord. You want me to die. And God says, no, I want you to love your enemies like I do. Now, this is a hypothetical that seems insane to us because everything we know about the world tells us that family and friends are for loving, uh, strangers are for putting up with, you know, the people in the line at the grocery store, you're like, oh, I, I put up with you, I don't necessarily love you, but enemies are for hating and destroying. I mean, that's what the world tells us. Think about it, every movie ever, like, I, I'm a big nerd, uh, I love Star Wars, I don't know if you guys have ever seen Star Wars, but... In the movie Star Wars, is the plan of the rebellion to love the Empire? No, the plan is to shoot missiles into the Death Star and blow up the Empire. How many of you guys have ever played a video game in your life? Anybody here? Um, Okay, so yeah, we've got some gamers here. Awesome. So I'm going to try to be just inclusive to everybody here, and I'm going to go back to the beginning. So we'll go back to like, you know, the 80s, uh, Super Mario Brothers, okay? Everyone here has probably been exposed to that. So you've got your jump button. That's really it. You've got a jump button. There's no love button. You know, there's no love your enemies button. You walk up to your enemy and you jump on him until he dies. That's basically what we're taught. Um, I was a huge reader growing up. Lord of the Rings, the story is not about Frodo loving Sauron. It's about him trying to destroy Sauron by dropping a ring into a volcano. So that's what we grow up learning. And the Bible is very much a story about good versus evil. Many times, We see this. We see God punishing evil rightly. He delivers justice to entire groups of people that are rebelling because justice is a part of God's character. He's just. He punishes sin. So think back to my hypothetical. God says, go to ISIS and preach the gospel to them so that they can be saved. That doesn't make sense to us because we think that's not justice. There are some people who deserve a chance to meet God, and then there's other people who just don't. They've crossed the line. They're too evil. They're too wicked. They can't be saved. God would never ask his followers to do something like that, right? Wrong. How many of you guys know the story of Jonah? 
Anybody here know the story? Like a lot of us grew up, if you're a church person, you've grown up hearing the story of Jonah. It's an amazing story. Uh, it's something, though, that can kind of easily be held captive by what I think would be called like the VeggieTales mentality. How many of you guys know VeggieTales? Yeah, so that's, that is, if you're not familiar with VeggieTales, if, you've got, if, if, you're, if you don't know VeggieTales, you're probably not the person who has kids. Um, for those of you guys who are parents, it's a Christian show that they play in children's ministry a lot in different places where it's basically a tomato and a cucumber uh, teach people Bible stories, and it's great. Um, but in those... We kind of focus in the children's ministry when we think about Jonah. What do we focus on? The whale, whale, exactly. Which is good because it's a remarkable part of the story. This, This whale swallows a guy and he survives in the whale for three days. That's amazing. But that's not all there is to it. Much more than a story about a big fish, Jonah is the tale of God inviting humans to partner with him on his mission to rescue the lost and the pride and bitterness that can get in the way of that mission. So... Um, Go to Jonah chapter 1, verse 1. Let's just start right there. Jonah 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Now just stop right there. It's really easy to read that verse and just move on quickly without any context. But listen, what God was asking Jonah to do was a really Scary, frightening task. Nineveh was the, the ISIS of Jonah's day. And we in the modern 21st century could be like, no way, they can't be as bad as ISIS. But I would say perhaps they could even be worse. You see, Nineveh was the capital of Assyria at the time, and they had a reputation for violence, war, and debauchery. Listen to what the prophet Nahum had to say about Nineveh. You can go to that next slide. So this is what Nahum says. Woe to the bloody city. It is full of lies and robbery. Its victim never departs. The noise of a whip and the noise of rattling wheels, the galloping horses, the clattering chariots, horsemen charged with bright swords and glittering spears. There is a multitude of slain, a great number of bodies, countless corpses. They stumble over the other corpses. Because of the multitude of harlotries, of the seductive harlot, the mistress of sorceries, who sells nations through her harlotries and families through her sorceries. That's intense. That's intense. The rulers of Nineveh had things to say about themselves. These are actually, I'm going to read to you, boasts that the people of Nineveh, the, the rulers of Nineveh made about themselves. Uh, one ruler said about his enemies, I cut off their heads and I formed their heads into pillars to support my buildings. Another said, about his enemies, we flayed them alive in the city of Arabella and we spread their skin across the city walls. Another one said, I cut off the limbs of their officers and their royal officers who had rebelled. 3,000 captives I burned with fire, their corpses I formed into pillars. From sun to sun I cut off their hands and their fingers and from others I cut off their noses, their ears and their fingers. Of many I put out their eyes." This is intense. These are an intense people. They're, they were known for beheading their enemies and, and basically lining the city wall with their enemies' heads on sticks. This is a crazy, nasty, terrible city. Now, the final verse of Nahum's book emphasizes the violence of the Assyrians in the form of a rhetorical question. Basically, Nahum says this. He says, who out there has not felt your cruelty? That's what he says about Nineveh. Who out there has not felt your cruelty. You can go back to the next slide. 
So this is a story about when God loves your enemies. God says to Jonah, go and preach to the Ninevites. Do you see what Jonah's dealing with? What God was asking him to do is literally equal to God asking you to go to fly to the Middle East and preach to ISIS. The Bible tells us that Jonah doesn't want to do it. And honestly, can you blame him? Because I wouldn't want to do it. I wouldn't be signing up for that missions trip. I wouldn't be like, yes, I want to go sign. I'd be like, no, this is, this is, this is terrible. I don't want to do this. Jonah runs away. You guys know the story of Jonah. He runs away, he gets on a boat, and he sails as far away as he can. And Jonah is afraid of the Ninevites, but not only is he afraid, he's angry. If you look throughout the story of Jonah, you see this anger and resentment in Jonah. He hates the Ninevites. More likely than not, people in Jonah's life, maybe his family or his friends or neighbors, had been killed or oppressed by the Ninevites. So I think back for me, if I bring it back to my culture, I think back to September 11th. That was a time in American culture where it was a dark day where basically terrorists flew a plane into one of the tallest buildings in New York City and brought the Twin Towers down and countless people died in that. I remember being a young person watching that on TV and I felt anger and hatred towards those who could be so cruel to take away those innocent lives. I hated them for what they did and I I hated who they were. And now Jonah, in the same way, is reacting to the call of God, not with obedience, but with fear and hatred. It's the same thing. He sees these wicked people, and he said, God could never love them, and so he runs. He rejects God's missions trip. So what happens after the story, or in the story? Here's the Reader's Digest version. Jonah runs away. He gets on a boat. He gets into a storm. And here's what's interesting. Uh, go to chapter one really quick. This is, this is really classic. Um, so... Verse 3 of chapter 1, Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish, and he went down to Joppa, and he found a ship bound for the port. And after paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. And then it tells us about the storm. So then go skip to verse 8, or verse 7. No, 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 sorry, verse 8. So then the sailors turned to Jonah, and they said, tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? And then verse 9, Jonah says, oh, I'm Hebrew, and I worship the Lord in heaven, and he made the sea. <laughs> like, think about that. And, and then it says in verse 10, it's really classic. It says that they actually already knew that, that he worshiped God, Yahweh, because he told them. He said, oh, I'm running away from the Lord. So, He gets on the boat. They're like, why are you on this boat? Oh, I'm running away from Yahweh. Oh, cool. So then they get on the boat and they start sailing and then there's a storm and they're like, what's going on, Jonah? And Jonah's like, oh, well, I may have uh, upset God and he made the sea. And they're like, you worship the God who made the sea? Why did you you get on our boat? Like, (laughs) that's insane. So um, that's what's going on. Jonah's in this storm, and, and he says, basically, throw me overboard, and the sea will stop raging. So they throw him overboard. He gets swallowed by the giant fish, and in the giant fish, Jonah has a slight change of heart, probably due to being slowly digested by a giant fish. Like, I think at that point, I'd be like, okay, God, you win. Like, <laughs> get me out of here. So he goes through temporary repentance, Uh, And he says, all right, God, I'll do what you want. And the fish vomits him onto dry land. So then Jonah goes to Nineveh, and he delivers the message to the people. He says, all right, God, you want me to go preach to them? I'll preach to them. And then after he preaches the message, he climbs up onto a hill, and he waits. And in Jonah chapter 4, we find Jonah sitting on top of a hill where he's built this little shelter. 
And, and it, he's planning on being there for a while because he wants to see what happens to the city. So he goes into the city, preaches a message, climbs up on a hill, and he sits there with his sunglasses and his popcorn, and he's waiting and he's watching to see what's going to happen to the city. Now, what do you think Jonah wants to happen to the city? Yes, fire from heaven, death, doom, destruction. But he's sitting there, he's watching, and that's not what starts to happen. You see, what happens is in the story, the people start to repent. There's this revival that spreads throughout the city. And so Jonah gets angry. In fact, um, this is a paraphrase of what he says at the end of the book. But basically, the way the story of Jonah ends is he basically says, I wish I was dead. I would rather die than see these people spared from what they deserve. Lord, why won't you smite them? Just let me die. It's, it's a sad story. It's, it, it ends basically like that. And you're like, oh, cool. I'll just go to the next book. Um, Jonah is angry, not just that God had called him to preach to his enemies. Jonah is mad that God led his enemies to repentance. Now, this is, this is where the story gets really interesting to me, and we're going to focus in on something in chapter 3, because God, who here would agree God is wiser than us humans? Anybody? Yeah. He knows so much that we don't know, and he's always one step, he's always 10 steps ahead of us. God always is thinking ahead of our, our finite human brains. And so really, something that, um, th this entire study basically I got um, from a Hebrew professor, and, and he pointed out just this clever trick that God plays on Jonah, and I just think it's brilliant. So I want to share it with you because it's impacted me a lot. So look at back to, back to uh, chapter 3, if you want to turn to chapter 3. In chapter 3, think about when Jonah preaches to Nineveh. Jonah had been told to preach. Go to Nineveh and preach against their wickedness. So he does. Does he give them this epic sermon? Does he stand up and deliver this amazing message? No, he gives them an eight-word sermon. Um, go to uh, the next slide. We're going to look at Jonah's eight-word sermon. So this is his eight-word sermon. Jonah began to enter the city on the first day walks, and then he cried out and said, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's all he says. That's it, which is honestly very odd because he was told to preach against the wickedness of the city. What does he not mention at all? The wickedness of the city. He doesn't say anything about it. He doesn't say, because of your wickedness in 40 days you'll be destroyed. He just says, in 40 days you'll be destroyed. Now, prophets in the Bible often when preaching to a city would tell them why their judgment was coming. He, they would show up and say, because you've done this, because you've done this, because you've done this, God is coming against you. Repent. He doesn't give them any reason. And who doesn't Jonah mention? God. He doesn't mention Yahweh, our God. And, and so... He's supposed to be representing God as a prophet, and yet all he does is he goes in and just says, 40 days and you'll be destroyed. Now, if you were walking down your street and a man just walked into your city and said, 40 days and the whole place is going down, would you, really, would you, would you think he had something to say or would you just be like, he's crazy? You'd just be like, he's crazy. This is very strange, but to me it shows where Jonah's heart is. Jonah doesn't want these people to have any option. He is just fulfilling an obligation to God. He's just fulfilling his religious duty. God said to go preach, so I'll go preach. He doesn't give them any real chance. So there's no hope for them. But this is where, this is in my opinion, the best part of the book. It's brilliant stuff, and it shows us God's will 
always defeats our own. Uh, what God wants to happen, even though us humans, we try to fight against God at times, if God wants something to happen, he's going to make it happen because our God is that powerful. So here's the thing. Um, so we got that verse up on the screen. Um, what word does Jonah use to describe what will happen to Nineveh? I'm sure that some of you guys have different translations in the room. Um, up on the screen, I've got overthrown. Does anyone have a different translation? Anybody? 40 days in Nineveh will be... Anybody? Anyone have destroyed? In the New Living Translation, it's destroyed. In the New King James, it's overthrown. Those are good standard translations, but I want to introduce you guys briefly to some Hebrew nerdiness. Um, the book of Jonah was written in Hebrew, and I promise this isn't going to be a long part of it, but let's just go back and let's look at the original Hebrew. You can go to the next slide. So the word I want to introduce you to is the word hapak. Can everyone say hapak? Hapak. Okay, so this is a Hebrew word. Simple, but it shows the ingeniousness of God. So in the original Hebrew, it says, 40 days and Nineveh shall be hapak. That's the words that would have been coming out of Jonah's mouth. Now, would you agree that in our language of English, many words have basic meanings, but then different meanings as you get into like the nuance of it? Like for instance, like let's say I told you, oh man, I totally killed Pastor Steve on the basketball court. Now that can have two meanings. Either I did really well and I beat him at basketball or I murdered him on the basketball court. Um, see what I mean? Words have different meanings. The same with Hebrew words. So there's three different meanings to the word hapak, the words that came out of Jonah's mouth. We're going to look at three places in the scripture where the word hapak is used to convey different meanings. So here's what the basic meaning of hapak is. You can go to the next slide. And then one more. Okay, so the basic meaning, this is like the root meaning of hapak, is basically turned over. Hapak. Just like, I have my phone, I just hapaked it. I just turned it over. That is the basic meaning. In Hosea chapter 8, or chapter 7, Hosea says this, Israel is like baked bread that has not been hapaked. What it means is basically he's describing Israel as a piece of bread that's been cooked too long on one side and you forgot to turn it over and cook the other side. He's getting towards their heart. He says, you've got these things in order, Israel, but you need to turn your heart over and get to the other side of things. It's this brilliant metaphor from Hosea. So that's the basic meaning, hapak, just turned over. So uh, let's go to the second meaning. So the second meaning of hapak is something is overthrown or destroyed. In, in Lamentations 4, chapter 6, or in Lamentations 4, verse 6, um, it talks about Sodom and Gomorrah, this wicked, wicked city, and it says that Sodom and Gomorrah was hapakt without a hand to help in a moment. So what it's talking about is you've got a city, and it's functional, and it's great, but then God comes in and poof, turns it on its head, hapak, and it destroys the city. So clearly, that's a negative meaning, right? It's overthrown and destroyed. But there's a third meaning. Um, hapak can actually mean changing or transforming. So taking something that's evil and hapaking it into good. In Psalm 30, verse 11, it says, you have hapaked my grief and mourning into dancing. You have removed my sackcloth and clothed me with joy. Do you see? It can be something bad changed to something good. This is where the writers of the Bible, inspired by God, it's just, it's so brilliant. Because remember this, what is Jonah? He's a prophet, right? And so if a prophet is someone who speaks through God and for God, then if we take Jonah's message, 
it's kind of a false prophecy if you look at it the way Jonah intends. Because what does Jonah say? Does Jonah say, if you don't repent in 40 days, the city will be destroyed? No, Jonah prophesies, and he says, 40 days and the city will be destroyed. Guess what? The city is not destroyed. So is Jonah a false prophet? No. Here's the thing. Um, See, through prophecy, you have a human messenger, but they're influenced in their delivery by God. So Jonah's walking around. He says, 40 days, and you're all going to be hopocked. What meaning do you think that Jonah intended to say? One, two, or three? In Jonah's mind, he thinks he means 40 days and you'll be hopok destroyed. Now, what meaning did God have through the words? Meaning number three. It's, it's just, it's so good. It's so ingenious and it's so, it's so funny. Like, no wonder Jonah is so mad. He's thinking, you know, I'm going to prophesy, which he's thinking he's twisting God's arm and he's basically, because it's a prophecy, God's going to have to come in and destroy them. And God's like, ha ha, funny you chose that word because I am going to hapak them, but it's going to be different than what you think. Jonah. It's so good. God just doesn't let Jonah get away with anything in this book. He says, Jonah, preach to your enemies. Jonah says, no, runs away. Storm thrown overboard, giant fish. And then he tries prophetic sabotage. He says, I'm going to go in there, and I'm going to preach a message, and I'm going to give those Ninevites so little information that they'll literally have no option to be destroyed. Like, they'll just have to be destroyed. That's how it's going to be. And yet Jonah uses God's words against him. It's, It's fantastic. It's one of my favorite stories in the whole Bible. So God has the last laugh, and he uses Jonah's words against him. So of course Jonah's angry, uh, because God used what Jonah meant for evil to be used for good. Now, I want to close with a story. Um, You can go to the next slide. How many of you guys have, uh, you can go to the next one after that. How many of you guys have ever heard of a woman named Corrie Ten Boom? Anybody here heard of her? So not everybody. So this is where I want to bring it home. And and before I go into the story, I, I just want you just not to be weird, but just, you know, just for a quick second, close your eyes, okay? I'm going to say the word enemy. Now, who comes to your mind when I say that word? You can open your eyes again. But when I say that word, who comes to your mind? Is it a coworker, someone in your neighborhood, someone in your family, a political enemy, just di- different things? We all have different places that our mind goes when we say enemy, someone that's hurt us, someone that's wronged us. This is where the story really comes home because this isn't just a Bible story. God writes these stories into the Bible because the Bible has something to say to all of us no matter what time period we live in. It's God's word and it's supposed to change us and move us and help us see God's heart and God's character. God is a God who loves his enemies. This is Corrie ten Boom. She was a Dutch Christian who lived during the time of the Second World War. She ran a watchmaking shop with her father and was involved in ministering to young girls in her community. During the war, Nazis invaded the Netherlands, and Corrie and her sister Betsy began helping Jewish people escape from the Nazis. They had a hole in the wall of their house called the hiding place, and they would hide Jewish refugees in that hole. And they were caught by the Germans, and sent to a concentration camp. And at that concentration camp, they suffered just unspeakable horrors, beatings, abuse, watching friends and family die in the gas chambers. During their time as young women in this concentration camp, Corey watched her sister Betsy die. But the Lord helped Corey survive, and after her release, she spent the rest of her life ministering to others, speaking about forgiveness and the hope in Jesus. 
And I'd like to read you a story written in her words. It's a powerful story. These these are Corey's words. I'm just going to read them. So this is Corey telling us her story. She says, It was in a church in Munich that I saw him, a balding, heavyset man in a gray overcoat, a brown felt hat clutched between his hands. And people were filling out of the basement room where I'd just spoken, moving along the rows of wooden chairs to the door at its rear. It was 1947, and I had come from Holland to defeated Germany with the message that God forgives. And it was truth that needed most to be heard in that bitter, bombed-out country. I gave them my favorite mental picture, she says, because she says, the sea is never far from a Hollander's mind. I like to think that that is where our sins were thrown. When we confess our sins, she says, God cast them into the deepest ocean gone forever. And even though I cannot find a scripture for it, I believe God then places a sign out by the sinful sea that says no fishing allowed. So then she, continue, uh, she continues to say, the solemn faces stared back at me, not daring to believe quite yet. There were never questions after a talk in Germany in 1947. People stood up in silence, and in silence they collected their coats, and in silence they left the room. And that's when I saw him walking towards me. One moment I saw an overcoat and the brown hat, but the next my mind flashed to a blue uniform and a visor cap with a skull and crossbones, and I realized I knew this man. And it came back with a rush. The huge room with its, with its harsh overhead lights the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. And I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, her ribs sharp beneath the parchment skin. Betsy, how thin you were. The place was Ravensbrook, and the man who was walking his way towards me had been a guard, one of the most cruel guards. And now in front of me, his hand was thrust out, and he said, a fine message, Corey. How good it is to know that as you say, All our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And then she says, I, who had spoken so passionately of forgiveness, I fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take that hand. He would not remember me, of course. How could he remember one prisoner among thousands of women? But I remembered him and the leather crop swinging from his belt. I was face to face with one of my captors, and my blood seemed to freeze. Then the man said, You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk. I was a guard there. And Corey says, no, no, he did not remember me. Then he says, but since that time, I have become a Christian. And I know that God has forgiven me from the cruel things I did there. But it would be so nice, Corey, to hear it from your lips as well. And then his hand comes out again and he says, Corey, will you forgive me? So then she says that she stood there. And she says, I, whose sins had again and again been forgiven, I could not forgive in that moment. Betsy, my sister, had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply by asking for forgiveness? It could have not been many seconds that he stood there, his hand held out, but to me it seemed as hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I had ever had to do. For I had to do it. I knew that. The message that God forgives has a prior condition that we forgive those who have injured us. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, Jesus says, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. And I knew it not only as a commandment of God, but as a daily experience. And since the end of the war, I had a home in Holland for victims of Nazi brutality. Those who were able to forgive their former enemies, 
were also able to return and rebuild their lives in the outside world, no matter what their physical scars, but those who nursed their bitterness remained invalid. It was as simple and as horrible as that. And then she says, and I still stood there with coldness in my heart, but forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will, and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You must supply the feeling in my heart. So then she says, woodenly, mechanically, I thrust out my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder and raced down my arm and sprang into our joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, she cried with all my heart. And for a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former God and the former, or the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. But even so, I realized it was not my love. I had tried and I didn't have the power. It was the power of the Holy Spirit as recorded in Romans 5 verse 5. The love of God is poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. What a powerful story, amen? So good. So do you see? This is, this is grace. It's getting what you don't deserve. It's forgiveness, it's love, and it's acceptance. In my society, we sing songs about grace, amazing grace, and people name their daughters grace. I've had multiple girls named grace come through my youth group. We think grace is this beautiful thing, but there's actually this scandalous side of grace. When the wideness, when God's mercy is so wide that it includes people that we hate, when it includes people that we have hated and despised people who've wronged us, people that we don't think deserve it. Grace can be really disturbing, but that's the scandal of grace, that no one deserves it, but that everyone has offered it through Christ. That's what the story of Jonah is all about, and it's such a relatable story. We all have people in our lives that the idea of God reaching them with his grace is scandalous, but isn't that what the gospel's all about? God reaching people who do not deserve it. And this all goes back to Jesus. If you read Jesus, one of the most powerful portions of Scripture is Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And when Jesus comes to his people and he delivers this message, the Sermon on the Mount has been called the, the Kingdom of God Manifesto. And basically what that means is it's Jesus saying, I am your king, let me tell you how you live in my kingdom. As citizens of my kingdom, which we are here, this, this room right now, this is an outpost of the kingdom of God. If King Jesus is here, then this is where the kingdom is. Jesus says the kingdom of God is among you. Yes, heaven is a place that we go when we die or when he comes back to take us, but through Jesus, places like this, communities like this are basically what we would say, uh, it's a colony of heaven on earth. You as God's people, you live the way that Jesus lives in your community, in this town. You go. It's not just we come here to church and we listen and we say great sermon and we leave. It's that you come and you get filled up with the kingdom of God and the Holy Spirit of Jesus in your heart that equips you to live the way that he lived and to do the things that he does. And so as you go out from this room, I'm sure that all of us have enemies. For me, growing up, it was 
this kid named Michael in my class who just always gave me the stink eye, you know, and I hated him so much, and he hated me, and it was so silly. It was grade school, you know, it was playground stuff. But as I got older, I started to see more people that I thought of as enemies. But the power of Jesus compels me to not have any enemies, but instead to make every effort to make my enemy my friend and to love my enemy and to pray for those who persecute me. That's what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. And you say, well, that's easy for you to say, Jesus. You're a pastor. You know, you're, you're God. Jesus didn't just say it. He lived it. When he was hanging on that cross, nails piercing through his wrists, pulling himself up to keep himself from suffocation, what did he say? Did he pray and say, God, smite my enemies, send down fire? No, he said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Jesus models this love for us. And I love the story of Jonah because so many people, they, they, they look at God and they say, well, you know, God in the Old Testament, he's mean and he, he kills people and he's violent. And then, you know, Jesus is love and peace and all that. And it's just, it's kind of like they're different gods. The story of Jonah is one of those glaring examples of how God and Jesus are the same. The same God yesterday, today, and forever, Right? This is a story of God looking at the worst of the worst, Ninevites, and saying, I love you enough to send Jonah to preach to you. And here's the other thing. Here's what's encouraging, because we all want to see revival. We all want to see great things happen in our communities. We want to see God come down. We want to see the Spirit fall. Here's the great thing to understand. It's not our responsibility. It's not us that's going to make it happen. It's God that's going to make it happen, and we just have to let him work through us. We just have to step into what he's already doing. Think about Jonah. God had a plan. I want to go to Nineveh and cause the greatest revival recorded. This is the greatest revival recorded in the Bible, even more than, than Antioch when Peter preached to 3,000 people and they got saved. This was an entire city that repented. The greatest revival in the Bible was accomplished by a guy who didn't want to do it. A guy who was literally running away. He was willing to die and be eaten by a fish rather than preach the gospel, the good news of Yahweh, the gospel in the Old Testament. It, it continues. The whole story of the Bible is it's the gospel. It's the good news of Jesus. Jonah was called into God's plan of preaching the gospel, and yet he rejected it, and God still did it. What, what an amazing thing for us to realize how much more are you in a place to be used because you're not running? You're here. You want to follow Jesus. You want to preach his word. You're not Jonah. God did it through Jonah even though he rebelled. You're here and you're obedient. There's people in this room who are willing to go preach the gospel. You're a church that is in the community, affecting the community with things like your surf school and outreach. You're, this, God wants to do great things through this church. I can feel it in my heart. Step, continue to be faithful, continue to be obedient. Like, like the pastor said today, continue to be committed and step in to what God is doing because he's going to do it. The question is just, are you gonna be a part of it or not? So to close, I just wanna ask, what would life be like if we obeyed the words of Jesus? Love our enemies, pray for those who persecute you. When was the last time you prayed for your enemy? You know, not, I used to pray for that, that kid I didn't like. I used to pray, Lord, strike him down. Um, what if we prayed for our enemies? Lord, bless them. Lord, that, that guy, 
that girl who's causing me so many issues at work or at home, Lord, change their heart. Lord, help me to be a better friend, a better neighbor, a better coworker. And Jesus, bring the gospel into their heart and transform them. Because think about it. We were God's enemies before he laid down his life for us. That's what the Bible plainly says. We were enemies of Jesus. And yet he hung on that cross for us and said, Father, forgive them. And he wasn't just talking about the Romans. He was looking into the future and seeing you. He was looking at all of humanity and saying, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Being a follower of Christ, it's never about safety and security because loving your enemies is not safe. You know, even in a peaceful community like this, it's, it's not safe to love your enemies emotionally. It's not safe to love your enemies, you know, physically. It's not, it's not. But God doesn't call us to that. He calls us to obedience, to the gospel. Let's go out this week, this month, and this year, and let's love more than we hate. Let's love our enemies. Let's pray for those who persecute us, and let's continue to spread the gospel in this town. Amen?